This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. morning about strength and weakness. I'm going to take 15 chapters, whoa, 15 chapters of Samuel, don't worry, I hope it won't take hours and hours and hours, 15 chapters of Samuel, we're going to race through the first few chapters of Samuel and, um, and we're going to look at uh, 15 lessons, 15 little lessons from 15 chapters of Samuel. The reason why we're doing that is because we're hoping to, next week and through the summer, we're going to look at the life of David and I felt that to really to look at the life of David without understanding the background wasn't really doing justice to the Bible story. Uh, I think sometimes you could hear David preached as a lot of little nice kind of Sunday school stories, and rather than understanding the big bigger story that it's in. And so, therefore, I I want to do that. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your provision for us as a church. Lord, we thank you for this. Time of baby growth, new babies. Uh, thank you for new people around. Thank you for you doing new things. Thank you for Laura's testimony. We pray for more of that, more of your power, more faith in you to do wonderful things amongst us. And Lord, we thank you for this kind of toe in the water, uh, the PAC. Lord, we thank you for providing that for us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would grow in faith, that we'd step up, we'd believe you, that we would at sea and inherit all that you've uh, called us to uh, walk into. So Lord, we thank you for your favor on us. We thank you for this season of your blessing. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, work through, look at the life of David in this series, that you would teach us some great lessons, that we become men and women of great faith as a result. Amen. One of my heroes was uh, Lance Armstrong. Who's heard of Lance Armstrong? Okay, most of you. Uh, I remember uh, a friend of mine called Matt... Uh, who's a bit of a cyclist, he was round at our house, and um, he said, oh, we've got to watch this Tour de France. And then what happened is that Lance Armstrong did this amazing hill climb in a stage called the Alpe d'Huez, and he just burned everybody off. And I'm saying to Matt, this guy is amazing. He is so strong. And what was amazing about the guy was that he'd had cancer. That he'd been in hospital with cancer, and... Uh, laid out, weak, potentially going to die, and then suddenly he's on a bike winning seven Tour de France's, and you think, this guy is amazing. And he had a charity called Live Strong, and he used to get these uh, these kind of wristbands with Live Strong on, and, uh, and you thought, well, this guy is amazing. He has been on his back, weak, almost facing death, and here he is climbing these massive Alps, 26 hairpins up the Alpe d'Huez. But the bottom line was... He was a fake, wasn't he? It was all front. He was a drug user, a performance-enhancing drug user. He was a bully. He was manipulative. He was a blatant liar. So 
on the outside he looked strong. Uh, and he's, you know, his whole thing was live strong. But on the inside it was empty, it was weak. And, I, and you just contrast that with, with a Christian life. You contrast that with the life of Christ who, who lived in apparent weakness. Lived in apparent defeat. Easter, Good Friday, looked like a, a massive defeat. Time after time after time, he looked like, why isn't he winning? The disciples are saying, why don't you look strong? Come on, you could do all this stuff. Why are you so weak? But yet we found that actually we know that inside he was, he was strong. There's a strength inside him. In fact, Paul writes in Romans that he had an indestructible life. He said he was raised to dead by the power of an indestructible life. There was such strength within him. And Paul talks about in Corinthians, we have this treasure in clay pots. And the whole thing about Samuel, 1 Samuel, as you work through, is that's kind of a little theme that goes through the book. What is, what is real strength? What is real <clears throat> integrity? What is real humility? And what's fake? And so we're going to race through that and um, learn some lessons. And the, if you've got a Bible, I'm not going to quote chapter, verse, chapter, verse, chapter, verse, but we are going to race through. So if you feel, oh, he isn't telling me where it's from, <clears throat> that's because that would mean the talk was far, far too long if I contextualize everything. But we're going to start through, and I'll say, we're in this chapter. We're in this chapter. So chapter one starts with a lady uh, uh, who's married, a man married to two women. What's going on there? Uh, the one he loves can't have any kids. Why has he got two wives? Let's not even ask the question. But his wife, uh, one of his wives, Hannah, um, Hannah suddenly looks up from her phone, Hannah uh, is, is, is not able to have kids. It's a classic story of, of kind of barrenness. And she uh, cries to God for children. She cries to God for children because in that culture, she has no identity without kids. She's, uh, she's shamed without kids. She feels abandoned without kids. And she cries out to God, and God gives her a son called Samuel. Okay, so this is how it's going to work. So lesson one, how does that apply to us? Let me tell you, we are often barren. As a church, we see people join us who are Christians, and that's great, and we need those people to help get it done. But there's times where we think we want more stories like Laura's where God kind of comes and does amazing stuff and catches somebody up. And so we have children. It says, doesn't it, in Isaiah, it says, you know, sing, O barren woman who never bore a kid. And then it says, but more are the children of the barren woman than those who were married. And that's supposed to be our inheritance. And we're, we're here for that. So when we move to a new building and we do new stuff, we're here for that. We're not just here to gather a crowd. It's nice to have a crowd. The crowd will help fill it. We'll help to be quiet. And some of the leaders who say you're rattled. But actually, the bottom line is, we want gospel children. Yes? That is what we're about. So right at the beginning, we want gospel children. And who gives gospel children? God gives birth to children. He, he, she, has a, uh, she has a son, and the son is called, does anyone know? Okay, so she has a son called Samuel. And she sings this amazing song. Chapter 2 sings this amazing song. I'm going to read a little bit of it. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord is my horn or strength. If you read the word horn, it's about strength. The Lord is my strength. 
in my Lord, in the Lord my strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, those that have mocked her, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak arrogance. For it, for the Lord is the God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken and those who stumble are armed with strength. There it is again. He's got this strong army, stumble, those that stumble armed with strength. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. There's Jesus right there. And it's, and then she finishes, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the strength of His anointed. Uh, it's right there, right at the beginning. Hannah is unequivocally saying, strength comes from God. Strength doesn't come from armies, it doesn't come from bows and warriors, it doesn't come from chariots, it comes from God. She knows it because she's felt incredibly weak and she's felt God give her strength. She's felt a sense her life has been death and God brings life. It, she she kind of talks that sense of it's Yahweh God who gives strength. So, lesson number two, God gives us strength. So strength doesn't come from new venues. Talking to Steve uh, in the break, and Steve said, "Absolutely, the, the, the venue is not going to be our savior. Yeah, the venue is not going to. The, the venue is not going to do it. If we all just think, well, if we can make it happen, it'll happen. We need to dig in, and we need to kind of man up, and we need to kind of carry weight. But the bottom line is, actually, if we uh, if we don't trust God, it won't happen. Now, if we don't do anything, it's not going to happen either. But the bottom line is, who are we trusting?" We're not trusting our ability to make it, get it, get it done. We're trusting His ability. We're not trusting our musicians, even though they will need to put some more sound out from the stage because the building's designed to take the noise from the congregation. We'll, we might lose our singing. We might feel those kind of dynamics, but actually we've got to say, God is the one who gives strength. So a friend of mine leads a church of 2,000 people and he's used to launching in a new venue with 150 people from the, from the go, from the go, from day one. And he said, whoa, you're going to rattle. But I think, well, what's our strength in? What's our hope in? Is our hope that we've got 150 so we can make it happen? No, our hope is in God. Amen? Lesson number two. Okay, so at that time, Israel's surrounded by the enemies. Uh, Philistines, Moabites, Amalekites, uh, and there's constant bloody battles with Israel. And the, in chapters, in, in Samuel uh, 4 to 6, we have an interesting uh, dynamic uh, that Eli is the high priest, his sons are corrupt, and they're violent womanizers. Imagine that as your leader, corrupt, taking money, and sleeping with the people as they arrive at the church building. Obviously not very good. But what happens is that the, these two sons of Eli uh, decide that they want to lead God's people into battle. And they think, well, how can we get it done? So they get this uh, this golden box, which is the Ark of the Covenant, inside which is the law of God, where it used to be carried by the priests and poles. They say, right, well, let's get that to the front of the army, and then we're going to win. Guess what happens? They lose. Why do you think they lose? Because God's not an idiot. 
God doesn't say, well, if you just do the right kind of things, if you just get this religious box and you just get this thing in front of you and you're living in sin, you are not going to win. You know, you can get, we can get the right building and carry it in front of us and think, right, well, that's going to be the solution if we get that. We can think, well, we're part of we're part of this group of churches. They're obviously very spiritual. Or we're part of this. Or we're Bible-believing people. But if we live in sin, we will lose. Sin weakens you. Sin weakens you. We can call our little pocket-sized God uh, to action and say, God, we'll bring you out at this time. But if the rest of the time we're not living God-first lives, we will not win. That's frightening, isn't it? That is frightening. That actually God is prepared to let his name be disgraced because he will not let us just walk without integrity. And they think, well, what's happened? It's supposed to, we're supposed to win because we're doing the right spiritual things. And we can come to this venue or another venue and do the right spiritual things, but if we don't live through the week with integrity, we're wasting time. We will not win. The lesson three is if we tolerate patterns of sin, we will be weak and we will be defeated. Churches that are full of sin are flaccid. There's no tension in them. There's no energy. There's no bounce about it. And we need to be those that are full of the Spirit of God, inflated, not weakened by sin. Okay, so what happens then is that the, the, the golden box, the, the ark gets captured by the, the Philistines. And they obviously used to think, well, we're still in chapter 4, that, that they used to think, oh right, this God of Israel, this Yahweh God, he's amazing. He's the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he's going to be the one who's going to smite, smite us in battle. And there his box means we're going to die and they're scared and the Israelites all cheer when the, when the box comes into the camp. But then when the, Is, when the Philistines capture the box, they think, what? God's weak. They think God's weak. And they take, the, they take the Ark of the Covenant, the box, and they put it at the feet of their god, Dagon, a fish god. They put it at the feet of the Dagon. You probably read, did this one in Sunday school if you haven't heard it before. And what happens? Does anyone know? Yeah, the, in the overnight, the statue falls down. So they think, that's strange, a coincidence, perhaps. They put the statue back up the following night, the statue falls down, and its head and arms are broken off. And actually, it's really interesting that they then think, we don't want anything to do with this God. They say that Yahweh's hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. And it's interesting that actually, through humiliation and defeat, what happens? God brings down enemy gods. Sound like a story you know? They're on the cross. Jesus, humiliated, apparent defeat. But yet, he's the Ark of the Covenant. He's the, he's the presence of God. And, and the enemy falls flat on his face. Flat on his face. Um, amazing. What does that tell us? It says, the, uh, Hannah's song says, The Lord uh, brings death and makes alive. He brings down and raises up. The lesson? God is the king over all the earth. We had a, a word from Tara few weeks ago, and she's basically saying that, and she's asking us, do we believe it? And prophetically, she's asking us again and again, do we believe it? And I understand her burden, because it's important. Do we believe it? It is so important. My father-in-law says to me, Howard, he said to me a number of times in my life, he said, Howard, you talk as if God's in charge, but you act like you're 
It's down to you. You talk like God's sovereign, but you act like it's down to you. Because the bottom line is, if you don't believe that God's really in charge, you will always feel despair and you always feel, I've got to do something about it. What is the lesson? God is the king over all the earth. All other gods fall before him. So next one. So uh, the, 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 the ark goes back to Israel. And then uh, we're in chapter, I think we're in chapter 7, right? By now. So it's going quick. Chapter 7, Samuel. What do we know about Samuel from a little boy? Sunday school lesson. Does anyone know? What do we know about Samuel from how, uh, as a little boy, he goes to live in the temple with Eli, serve God in the temple. Hannah's so delighted, she says, I'm going to give my boy a God. And, and in the night, Samuel hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel, he goes and says to Eli, what, what do you want? He says, lie down, it's nothing to do with me. It happens again and again. And then finally, Eli says what? Does anyone know? It's God speaking. The thing about Samuel is right at the very beginning, he knows to hear the voice of God. And actually right through, that, that, that's one of the key things that comes out of here. So what happens is Samuel the prophet is leading Israel and he gathers them together and says, I've heard from God you need to turn from your idols, you need to turn from your stuff that makes you weak and flaccid and you need to, you need to engage with God. And they burn their poles and they burn their idols and they say, enough. And then when the Philistines hear that they've done this, what do you think they think? This is bad. The Philistines are the baddies. The Philistines act for the enemy. When you try and repent in your life, when you try and de- get rid of stuff in your life, what's going to happen is that the, the enemies aren't going to say, well, that's great. Isn't that nice? God first is turning from its idols. It's going to come in and attack. So the Philistines, the rulers of the Philistines, gather loads and loads, a massive army. Now, what do you do? You're weak little Israel at this point, and you're in basically a church meeting, and this army comes and surrounds you. What do you feel? You feel fear. You feel there's a crisis. Now, question is, what do you do in a crisis? What do you do in a crisis? What do you do when there's fear? There was a word last week about fear. Don't fear. What do you do in a crisis? What do you do when it feels like everything's pressing around you? I would like to be like Samuel, because what he does is amazing. What his first reaction is to pray. A friend of mine is, uh, used to be in a church in, in, in South Africa, uh, uh, about a thousand strong church. And I used to say to him when we were in Manchester, oh, we only get 25 to the prayer meeting, what is the matter with everyone? We were about, I don't know, 100, 120 or something, we get 25 to the prayer meeting. And he said, we got in South Africa, we a thousand, and we get 15 to the prayer meeting. It's not our first reaction, is it? I'm not saying the prayer meeting is the only place you can pray. But it's not our first reaction, is it? When life's tough or we want to see breakthrough, our first reaction isn't let's come and pray. But Samuel's reaction is we're going to pray. And then he does something else which is amazing. I love it. He says, right, let's pray. Let's repent. And then he sacrifices a spotless lamb and they get water and pour the water out. Now there's two things going on there. One, when they got water and poured it out, it's called a drink offering. And what they're saying is, I am going to pour myself out for Yahweh God. I'm going to pour myself out for Yahweh God. But before that, what happens? He gets a lamb 
and sacrifice. The place he does it is amazing. The place he does it is called the Temple of the Lamb. It's called Beth Care. The temp- Beth means house or temple. The Temple of the Lamb. So what's going on here? The enemy's pressing in, and Samuel is saying, "What the response to this is? Pray and what? Jesus, Jesus's death and resurrection." Uh, Fillmore, in his brilliant commentary, straight to the heart, says this: Samuel preaches the gospel so clearly within the limits of his understanding that Satan springs into action and stirs the Philistines to attack. Saul just isn't the 14th judge of Israel, but also a priest who rallies God's people to victory through a lamb. The name Bethkir in verse verse 11 is Hebrew for the temple of the male lamb. Because Samuel's prayers are offered on the basis of a slaughtered animal which prophesies God's victory over Satan through Jesus' death at Calvary. And then it says, since the Philistines believe that Baal controls the thunderclouds, the Lord routes them with a deafening thunder. What happens is he sacrifices the lamb and they pray and the, the Philistines are all crowding in and God just does this massive thunderclap. And they all go, whoa, and run away. What's the lesson? God's gospel lives are not half-hearted, but cross-shaped poured out fully to God. They say, I pour out my life like a drink offering. Paul says that. He says, I've run the race. My life's been poured out like a drink offering. That is what we're supposed to do. Now I know, I need a cup. Our little version of a drink offering is this. An hour on Sunday. Maybe two hours. That's it. Might come to group occasionally. No, the poor drink offering is like this massive kind of big flagon and just pour it all out, tip it all up. Put it on your head like you do in student races. Um, <laughs> it's pour it all out. That's what it's, that's what it's saying. A drink offering is pour it all out because when j- the lamb didn't just give a bit of his blood, did it? He poured it all out. Jesus didn't give a little bit of himself. He poured it all out. Our response is cross-shaped lives are poured out fully to the lamb of God and we are to pour our lives out for him. Okay, chapter 8. So that was lesson number 5. Cross-shaped lives are not half-hearted. But cross-shaped lives are poured out fully to the Lamb of God who poured out his life for us. Chapter 8. Samuel's growing old. It says in verse 1, Samuel is growing old. I'm growing old. John's growing old. You're all growing old. But there comes a time in our thinking, Kath's growing old. <laughs> Paul, you're growing old. Anyone else? <laughs> yes, yes, you're growing old, Richard. There comes a time in our thinking when we think you're too old. We have a thinking where you think you're too young. And then for about a year, you're at the potential age to do all God's called you to do. And then say, you're too old. Yeah? That's my life. You're too young. You're too old. What, what, when, what? But actually, that's human thinking. They say, Samuel, you're too old. He's 65. And if you read the story, he's still got 37 years of ministry. Don't worry, I will not be still going at 90, 102. Yeah, I, I hope not to be leading this church at 102. And you probably hope it's not leading at 65. But the interesting thing is, that the, the issue here is not that Samuel's too old and weak. 
because we've just seen him lead them an amazing victory. The problem is they start to put their faith, Israel starts to put its faith in human strength. They feared that an old-aged prophet who prays and his slaughtered lamb would not be enough to save him. And so they say, we need to reject him and look for our own solution. Let's reject God's way and look for our own solution. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier. When, I, I, when I'm talking to my father-in-law, and he said, Howard, he does this to me, I think, stop it. He said, Howard, you're moving too quickly to your own solution. I'm saying, well, if we do this, we get this right, we do that, we do that, do that, then, then it's all going to work. He says, Howard, don't just move from prayer to your own solution. Because we do that so quickly. Now, when I'm saying this, you probably think I'm useless. But hey, I'm meant to be weak. It's about God strong. Okay, that, that actually, don't move to solution finding. Don't move from, from God's strength, from God's sacrifice, from God's word into finding our own solution. So you can build, you can build a big church and God's lamb, slaughtered lamb is nowhere in the mix. You can build a big church and actually there's loads of things that look strong, but actually we need to say we're not trying to find a solution. But it's not just about gathering a crowd. We say we don't want to move from God's strength to our own strength. So they say, still in verse chapter 8, they say to Samuel, you are old. Now give us a king like the other nations to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now it wasn't that Yahweh God was against the idea of a king. Deuteronomy 17 writes this. It's interesting. It's pretty critical here. This is before Deuteronomy is when they're wandering in the desert. Israel's wandering in the desert and God's telling them what the shape of the nation is going to be about. And he tells them they're going to have a king. He says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God, when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say to, you say to yourself, let us set a king over us to be like the other nations to go out before us and fight our battles. Be sure you appoint a king over you, the one that the Lord anoints or the Lord chooses. And he says, when he takes his throne in his kingdom, he'll write for himself on a, he'll write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. This law is to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life, so he may revere the Lord his God and follow his words carefully. God was going to have a king, but he wasn't going to have this uh, an obvious kind of powerful king. He was going to have a king whose, whose strength comes from where? From God and from, from his word. Now it's interesting. Yahweh is going to anoint a king. In fact, Hannah at the start of the book says, there is no one like you, Lord. There is no, no rock like our God. It is not by strength that one prevails. Or those, those who oppose you will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And horn, exalt the strength of his anointed. In fact, he has thundered from heaven and defeated the, the, the Baals. But actually, he's going to have a king whose strength comes from God. Now, I found this interesting. You might not. Just a little aside. Where, how was Adam and Eve? Does anybody know what Adam and Eve were supposed to do when they were in the garden at the beginning? God told them two things. He said, I want you to rule over the earth and subdue it. 
They were meant to rule over the earth and subdue it. And they were meant to, and I talked about this before, they were meant to rule by God's word. They were meant to rule by knowledge of good and evil. They were meant to rule under the tree of, of, of knowledge and good and evil. They were meant to rule through his word. So Israel's king, it's the same. He's meant to rule through God's word. He's meant to, to, to say that's his authority. Now what does the king's strength was to flow from daily reading of God's word? Now this is difficult, isn't it? What's the lesson here? You've got to get your strength from daily reading. It's not rocket science, but I just know. If I did a little show of hands, how many are still doing their, you know, here we are in June. Who's still doing their daily readings from, you know, the Bible through the year? I know my wife is. She's feeling good at this point. But, you know, she's doing Nicky Gumball, Bible through the year. But it'd be interesting. One of the things that so often comes up in threes is, I haven't read my Bible for a while. Now, we don't want to read the Bible as like a tick box exercise, but we've got to understand if we're going to rule in life like the Adam was meant to rule, like, like the kings of Israel were meant to rule, we rule under the word of God. We rule saying, this is, this is where I'm going to get my strength from. Lesson seven, strength is found in our daily times in God's presence. Lord, help us on our knees with the Bible in our hands. The reason why Israel requested a king is because a, ki- a king of the... Ammonites called Nahesh was attacking them. And I thought, so what? Nahesh, so what? But actually, I saw in a commentary, Nahesh means serpent. So that's interesting, isn't it? Here we've got a king, Adam and Eve are supposed to rule God's earth under God's word, and a serpent comes in and they decide to rule it themselves. They decide to get rid of God and rule themselves. What happens is Israel is supposed to, uh, Israel's king is supposed to rule under God's word. This serpent comes in and what happens is they choose their own king. They say, God, we don't want you as our king. We're going to choose our own king. Samuel says, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't right. Just like Eve, Adam and Eve turned from, uh, turn uh, from God, so they, Israel turns from God. They turn, uh, Fillmore says this, they turned from one in a king under Yahweh God and to a king besides Yahweh God and then quickly instead of Yahweh God. That's us, isn't it? We say, yeah, I'll start under God. I'll, I'll submit to God's, God's rule. But when pressure comes, we think, no, it's not good enough. And we say, I'll have something else beside God. And before we know it, we've got some else instead of God. Samuel's upset. He says, you've, they've rejected me. And, but God says, no, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. The, Samuel tells the people in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 10, he says, be careful what you wish for. This, the, this is what the king will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons as soldiers and farmers He'll take your daughters to work in his kitchens. He'll take the best of his, your fields and vineyards. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and, and you yourselves will become his slaves. What do you notice about this God? About this king, Israel's king, the king that Israel chooses to be its ruler? He's going to take. It's going to be take. God, we know, is a God who gives. Be careful what you wish for. If you choose another God, you will not find it giving you life. You'll find it taking life. You'll find, instead of it being, instead, uh, if you choose a, a, another God, you'll find, actually, this is draining me of life. And you can see that in people's lives. They look for something else to be their savior, and they find, no, it's draining them of life. It's a God that grasps and takes the best of them. 
Whereas if you have God as your king, God gives the best of himself to us. Israel, like Adam, exchanges a glorious, overflowing God who gives life for a grasping king like Satan who takes. Lesson eight. If you fear, feel weak and fearful, beware you don't look for some other God and savior than Jesus. Okay. Then, so they get a king. Does anyone know what the king they, that, that they get is called the first king? It's not David, it's Saul. And actually, Saul means asked for or demanded. It's like, I demand this king. We don't want you, God, anymore. We want our own king. I demand this king. And it says, it introduces him in 1 Samuel 9. At the beginning, it says, there was a Benjamite, Benjaminite, uh, a man of standing whose name was Kish. That's his dad. Kish had a son called Saul. What do we know about Saul? as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he's a head taller than anyone else. Well, it's interesting. What have they chosen Saul on? They've chosen him on base. He's young. He's handsome. He's got film star looks. He's got the body of an athlete. So obviously he's a dim and distant memory for me in all of those areas. And he's a head taller. He's tall. He's strong. He's good looking. And they're saying, right, he's got to be the one. He's got to be the one who's going to crush the serpent. And in one sense, it seems, uh, if you read it in 1 Samuel 9, 20, he seems weak. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, who am I that the whole of Israel should desire me? Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe? And my clan is the least of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why do you say this thing to me? And he hides among the supplies. And actually, you can read Saul and you think, well, he's really humble. Because if, if I said to, to Matt here, Matt, I'm gonna, we're going to make you king. If he said, yeah, yeah, if he does that, of course, about time you recognize me. I'm, I'm a head, my beard is a head fuller than everyone else. You know, I'm more athletic. I'm better at poker apart from George. No, I, I, you know, I've got all these characteristics. Why don't you? Yeah? But actually, if, if he said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really not up to it. I'm too weak. I'm not really the, the right person. I, I'm going to hide behind, you know, I just, no, 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 it's not me really. No, no. You'd think, how humble, wouldn't you? Yes? But actually, it's, pro, it's actually that it's not Saul's problem that he's unaware of his weakness. It's good to be aware of your weakness. But actually, if you're only aware of your own weakness then you're just a black hole of insecurity and self-pity. If you think, oh, I'm not this, or I'm not that, you're just a black hole of insecurity and self-pity. Saul's problem is not that he just thinks he's weak. That What's he missing? Rejected me, God, as their king. He's forgot, he doesn't know that God is strong. It's okay to say I'm weak. It's okay to say, man, I'm not up to this. It's okay to say, it's beyond us. This step to the new building, this step into different things, it's beyond us. It's okay to say I'm weak. But if you then say, God's weak as well, you're just going to end up in insecurity and self-pity. A low view of weakness and a low and a high view of God is what we need. But if we've got a low view of ourselves and a low view of God, we're going to end up in self-pity. What do people like that do? What do people who are insecure do? What's their attitudes? They're always, they're always, they're always competitive. 
They're always jealous. If you're insecure, somebody does well, you, you, don't, you can't celebrate with them. You're always trying to make yourself look better. You're always trying to put other people down. You're always trying, you're always look a little bit arrogant. You puff yourself up to say, actually, I am good. You're trying to inflate yourself when you know there's something inside that's wrong. So you, 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 you're, you can be aggressive and angry. Insecurity is a terrible thing. And it's, what, what does our society say? Well, you need to puff yourself up. You need to have high self-esteem. But actually, that's not the answer. The answer is to have a sober view of ourselves. This is what I'm like. But a high view of God. God is the answer. God is what I need. I feel self, I, I, I feel jealous, but no, God, you're my portion. I feel insecure, but God says you're my beloved son. We need to understand that actually a, a low view of our weakness without a high view of God is not humility, but pride. Lesson nine. So even though Paul, Saul is the people's choice, Yahweh God is very gracious to him. He actually, he actually anoints him. Uh, Samuel, it says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? It's clear that it's God's kingdom, not his. And what just happens then is that, that the spirit of God comes on Saul. It says, the spirit, Samuel says to him, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you and you'll prophesy with the prophets and you'll be changed into a different person. Do what you want to do because God's with you. Amazingly, when the spirit of God's coming, you think that, that that's great. The God's spirit has come to change him into a different person. And for a season he is. He's amazing. He wins victories. He calls the armies. You think, when, when the victory comes, he says, God has given us victory. And it's a sense where the Spirit of God has come. But the problem with Saul is that that's the only time he encounters God. You know, any, any other time where he prays to God, any other time where he encounters God, any other time he gets this high definition moment, spirit-filled moment where he prophesies and everyone goes, whoa, even his mates say, you're different. What's happened to you? But actually, he doesn't live in it. What's the lesson? The lesson is that actually, if you have a high intensity encounter with God by his spirit, but with, you can't say, that's enough for me. I know people who say, oh, I, I was filled with the spirit or baptized with the spirit when I was 20, and they're 50. You think, what's happened between? We need to encounter God on a, on a daily basis. We need to encounter God on a regular basis. Paul says what about the Holy Spirit? Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say you have a one-off encounter at some camp when you were 15 and that's it. It's great when Laura's saying, I was in the meeting of my hands. She didn't say this, but I know. My hands felt really warm. And I thought, what's this? We need to expect encounters with God. We need to expect encounters with God through his word. When we pray, we need to expect encounters with God. We need to be filled with God. Lesson 11. I'm just going to say one thing about Saul. Uh, We'll pick him up more, tag him onto the front of David next week. 1 Chronicles 10 says this about Saul. Saul was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and not once did he inquire of God. Not once did he inquire of God. What we find with Saul is actually not that what he does seems bad, but the bottom line is 
he just never, ever encounters God. He's got no walk with God. You know, Jesus says, it says, it's, people come to me in their last days and they say, didn't we prophesy in your name? I saw did that. Did we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, go away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. Now that's a scary verse, isn't it? I remember a friend of mine, leads a church in Leeds, he, was, he had a guy on his staff, and they were talking about his, his relationship with Jesus, and he said, the guy just said, I don't think I've got to walk with Jesus. I've been going to church all these years, I've had these occasional high intensity encounters with God, but I don't think I've got to walk with Jesus. I found that scary. I think, God, examine my heart. I want to walk with you. Remember my sister saying to me, Howard, his sheep know his voice. And as I'm preparing this and thinking, what is Saul's problem? Saul's problem is he's just doing it on his own. Now our temptation, God first, is just to do it on our own. I just feel if we're going to live strong, it's like the obvious. You say, oh, what did it take? What did we learn at uh, at church today? What did we understand at church today? Read your Bible, pray every day. It's like the thing they tell you when you, sorry, yeah, take that. When you first become a Christian, isn't it? Yeah? But I know if you were asked to lead a nation, you would be, whoa. I need to know God. What am I supposed to do? I've got to lead this church and think, God, speak to me. I need to know what what to do. What's your will? Imagine leading a nation and you're just making it up as you go along. Imagine leading a nation. Imagine just trying to be a good husband, a good wife, a good person at work, and you don't have a walk with God. Actually, we're there so often. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm saying... Let's be thirsty. When we read about David, he says, my soul thirsts for you. My soul pants for you. And David does much worse things than Saul. But the bottom line is that Saul is doing it on his own. He thinks he's Lance Armstrong. He thinks if I put on a show, if I make it look good, if I sacrifice at the right times and say the right prayers in the right place, no one's going to realize But there's nothing inside. Whereas David, even when he's bringing up the sheep, even when he's just a shepherd boy, he's learned to hear the voice of God. Samuel, he knows what it is to hear the voice of God. And I think, God, we need to know that. Don't you feel hungry? I don't want you to feel condemned. I want you to think, don't you? Do you want to do that? Some of you are nodding, some of you are not so sure. You're allowed to admit it. I, if you read these passages, you think, I'm so like Saul. Insecure self-pitying, doing it on my own. You think, God, fill me with your spirit afresh. I can be a great warrior. You find he's just a fake. He's just hollowed out. And we don't want to be that. And if we're going to step into big victories, we need to find our walks with God. Fresh, fresh. That's what threes are about, but threes can't do it for you. That's what G1Cs are about, but G1Cs can't do it for you. That's what Sunday's about. It's about empowering you, but that can't do it for you. But if you just think, my little drink offering, I'm just going to pour out a little drop, you're going to find, actually, you're not going to stay full. You're going to look in the cup and say, actually, I have nothing to pour out. I'm just hollowed out. 
Let's stand. I just want us to... Lord, we pray, give us gospel children. Lord, we pray, help us from sin that weakens us, but yet going through the motions and expecting you to give us victory. Help us to be like Samuel, whose first instinct is to fall on his knees. His first instinct is to trust your amazing sacrifice, Jesus. His first instinct is to say, let's pour ourselves out before the Lord. Lord, let that be our first instinct. When pressure comes, when things don't work out, when, when we don't get the, 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 the results we want, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to be poured out, cross-shaped, dedicated to you. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be saying actually that, that your word and that your lamb's not enough for us, that we need to find a human solution. Lord, I pray that the, you, Lord Jesus, the great king that rules over us, will teach us to dig into you, to inquire of you, to learn like Samuel, to hear your voice, to have that walk with you, to be like the kings of old who daily took the scroll that they'd wrote out, that they'd committed to heart, that they'd said, Jesus, it's your word we want to rule with. I pray, Lord, just do something in us as a people now that takes us deeper before we go wider. Lord Jesus. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.